Section 5 of The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 9, June 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Manalakis. The Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 9, June 1896. Section 5. The Luck of Killing Day by Macpherson Fraser. The three companies of the Ninth Cavalry ordered up from Laramie with gilded records for minstrelsy and savage skirmishes to help form the headquarters of the Department of the Platte at Fort Niobrara were dismounting in front of their new Dobie quarters between H Company and the Sutler's store. They had been in the saddle almost continuously for ten days, and were sore of limb and a little ugly in spirit. The adjutant's niece, who had pulled up her pony in the rear of the guardhouse, fifty yards distant, was contemplating them attentively. She had never experienced colored regulars before. Her six months' career on the western frontier, excepting a few days with a March blizzard at Boise City, Idaho, lay entirely at Niobrara, whither she came from the arms of her parents in Chicago. They had sent her with tearful reluctance away out to the post-adjutant's wife, to forget Chopin and Schubert, and five o'clocks and small gossip for a while. To get out of the conventional, they told their neighbors. And while she sat there straight on her pony, and heard the troops swearing softly over hot August sand winds in May, and whistling jigs to keep their teeth from gritting, she believed she must be fulfilling her mission with great credit. The two youngest lieutenants of the Ninth, easing the wet girths on their horses, were eyeing her hard. They hadn't looked on a pretty woman for more than eighteen months, and had almost given up hope. Therefore, though this one seemed to pay no special heed to their glances, she impressed them considerably. On the ride down to the stables, while the girl was cantering home, they admitted as much to one another. And, because they had come out of West Point arm in arm, their admissions meant a great deal more than you might suppose they would. On the third day in barracks, after they had unpacked their boxes and chosen the most comfortable room and quarters to shave in, they called together to pay their respects to the post-adjutant, smoked his perfecto cigars, and returned to their own rocking chairs and pipes to swap epigrams on the stately loveliness of his niece. The girl took possession of their heads very suddenly, you see, which was natural and excusable under the circumstances and she occupied them with varying increments of tenacity until one afternoon, two weeks later, in the cobwebbed cellar of the post-hall. They were rummaging in the corner used as the dressing-room for the post-theatricals. "'Well, what if she is indifferent and pious? A little religion and proper doses wouldn't hurt me at all. And consider her looks. She may not be a facsimile of the Venus of Milo, but the resemblance is close enough to suit me.' I took particular care to study her last night, said the younger of the two youngest lieutenants from his perch on an old gun rack. His name was John Sterling Mix, and his hair was blonde. Moon talk, said Sandum, discovering a hand mirror in a battered leather trunk. It's time you quit studying women, Mixie. You're too young to understand them. Why don't you learn to talk Sioux, which is profitable in this country? Something is going to break loose on the reservation pretty soon and you'll be up a tree for an interpreter. I haven't the slightest doubt that the girl is lovable and good to look at, but I shouldn't go much farther than calling her by her last name. Hello, what's this nasty stuff in the pillboxes? Looks like salve. 
Doris Sandum, he was entered in the register as Lieutenant, D Company, Ninth Cavalry, had got his fingers in some of the grease paint and powder and burnt cork left over from the last Fool's Day performance. He daubed a little rouge on the end of his nose and squinted at the cavalier on the gun rack, who grinned and began to count off the finer virtues of the girl. "'If you don't let up, Mixie,' Sandum shouted, "'I'll be obliged to smear you with this rouge. It'll do you less harm than the color of the cheeks of the adjutant's niece.' Mix glowered for a moment while his brain evolved an outlandish idea. Then he said, "'Dory, I will make you a proposition.' I understand they have a killing day on the reservation every week, like our bloody Tuesday in the territory. There's one next Saturday, and some of the people are going over with the colonel in the ambulance. Now, suppose we get out our leggings and borrow a shirt and ride in with the Indians. We can give those skunk eaters a few pointers on punching. Come, boy, what do you think? There's your grease paint. See if you can find any burnt umber in that trunk. Yes, there's enough to paint a house. Think of the sport. I think, Sandum answered, eyeing him quizzically, that you are one of the most ingenious fools I have... Wait, Mix interrupted. I'm looking for sport, but I'll make it an object for you, in dead earnest. If you kill first, I agree to quit talking about the girl. But of course I may call on her as often as she pleases. If I kill, I accept a proposition, Mixie, cried Sandum, with absolutely no ill feeling. The sutler will drive us over, and we can make some kind of a deal about dressing at the reservation. You are not only an ingenious fool, but a daredevil. Come along home, it's dinner time. On Saturday, about an hour after guard mount, the two youngest lieutenants got into a double-seated buckboard in front of the sutler's store with a bundle that contained a small hand mirror and three boxes of burnt umber. Then the pudgy little sutler climbed in with a box of long pine Havanas and touched his whip to the nigh mule. The six-mule post-ambulance, which was used on all occasions as a stagecoach, had gone on half an hour before with a distinguished and expectant party. By the time the buckboard was out of sight of the post and across the Nyabrera Ford, the two youngest and the sutler were chatting merrily over their cigars. "'Oh, yes,' the sutler was saying. "'We manage to take things as they are up here and keep in decent spirits. The minstrel show and the hops.' And the dinners at the colonel's and the doctor's kind of make up for the bad winter months and the sand fleas. Of course, it's the same doggone old story, week in and week out. Until you people came, we hadn't a new arrival for more than two years, except the Indians and the paymaster, and Miss Corliss, the adjutant's niece. I reckon you've met her. Well, she come out last November green and somewhat shy for this part of the United States. The doctor's daughter is the only other girl we have, and she's at school in Boston. When she comes home, the two girls ought to make a pair worth your while, I tell you. The sutler twisted his mouth into a smile. Mix bit the end off a fresh cigar and asked if Miss Corliss had ever enjoyed a killing day. She hasn't even seen one, sir. She bought some smelling salts at the store yesterday. Stylish girl, she is that. I don't know of any handsomer this side of Omaha upon my socks, I don't except in the doctor's daughter, and we kind of got used to putting her first. We can't somehow get over it. So the talk ran while the buckboard jolted easily over the lumpy, springy buffalo grass of the level prairie. Whenever the sutler flagged a little on Miss Corliss, Mix promptly reminded him, and was in turn reminded by a nudge from Sandum, who found difficulty in squeezing in an occasional question on the condition of the reservation and the possibility of a war dance. 
By the time Mix had extracted a bookful on the adjutant's niece, the buckboard was in sight of Spotted Tail Reservation. We'll drive over to Black Wing's log house, the sutler said. You can dress there while I hunt up a couple of ponies. I suppose you'll want them fast and don't mind a little of the devil, but look out if they have sore backs. I don't know, maybe Black Wing himself is going to kill today. He usually does when there's company from the post. By two o'clock, the long, thin processions of bucks and squaws which had been stringing out from the four corners of the reservation were gathered around the fence of Black Wing's corral. The dusky heads capped the pointed birch slabs as if they were spiked. Excepting the monotonous mumbling of three thousand guttural voices, the crowd was remarkably quiet. Some of it was squatting indolently on sleepy ponies, but most of it was afoot in yellow and gray and red blankets, and ill-fitting cutaway coats and buckskin breeches, and cast-off cavalry raiment. Against the fence, near the long bar gate, the post-ambulance was drawn up, and on top of it, in camp chairs under red and white parasols, sat the colonel and his wife, and the post-adjutant and Mrs. Urquhart, the sutler's wife, and a black-eyed girl under a big leghorn hat. She looked down with studious tranquility along the rows of ugly faces turned toward her, or watched the dozen steers that were grazing lazily in the center of the corral. She was getting some more of that experience which her parents had told her would be unconventional, and already she was thinking how much of it she would send them on grayish-blue paper in a small square envelope that very night, not forgetting to mention the strong smell of Indian that was everywhere in the air. Presently the mumbling along the fence grew louder, and as the bar gate was slowly shoved open and six bucks rode in bareback at a lope, it swelled into lusty shouting. Two of the riders, in tight beaded buckskins and flannel shirts, wore red calico on their heads and towed in. Another, the brawniest of the batch, had three speckled feathers in his hair and sat his pony as if he were posing for a photograph. That was Blackwing. According to custom, the riders swung to the right and cantered down around the corral and back to the gate, waking up the herd and saluting the party on the ambulance with waving of hands, amidst prolonged howling from the throats along the fence. Then there was a lull which fell to dead silence while Blackwing raised his broad buoy as high as he could reach, uttered a piercing coyote cry, and charged into the herd. He bore down on the beast with the longest horns and dealt it a swooping, savage, crunching blow behind the shoulder with all his might, then drew back a little, brandished his dripping knife, and sprang in again. The show had now begun. A mighty hurrah went up from the crowd along the fence as all the riders closed in for the fight and slaughter, and while they punched and slashed on left and right and spattered themselves with hot blood, the applause broke in the frantic screeching and the 3,000 spectators jumped up and down and waved their hands and dug their dirty nails into the fence for joy. Two steers dropped on their knees and toppled over. The crazy herd seemed to understand and made a furious dash for the lower end of the corral, came together, hugged the fence, and stampeded in sheer terror, with the ponies on a run at their clattering heels in a cloud of dust. If you have never seen Bleeding Texas cattle stampede, with their long-horned heads shaking frantically close to the ground and their big eyes glistening, there is at least one kind of excitement you haven't experienced. The herd was rounding past the gate, well bunched, when suddenly there went up from along the fence a yell that split the air. One of the bucks with red calico on his head had been pitched from his pony. Sandeman warned Mix that his ticklish pony might throw him, and when he saw the boy lying at the lower end of the corral in a heap, motionless, 
with a frenzied herd aimed straight at him, he grew a little pale under his grease paint. As he swung away from the bucks and kicked his pony into a dead run, the crowd quit screeching, and with jaws set watched him race to beat the plunging herd. At seventy-five yards he passed it. Six lengths farther he threw himself full length half off his pony's back, swooped out and down, snatched a handful of slack in the back of Mix's shirt, and took up the race again, lugging one hundred and fifty-five pounds of limp helplessness. It was a magnificent showing of skill and nerve, and the crowd said so at once with an outburst of shrieking that increased to a panic when it realized that both bucks were white men. Sandham's shirt was ripped to his waist, and Mix's blonde head was bare, to say nothing of the plaster of sand and grass in his face, where the paint wasn't rubbed off. The willing little beast that bore them was badly frightened, and Sandham couldn't stop him until some time after Mix had been dropped in a lump near the ambulance. The boy was unconscious. He was a hard-looking case, lying there flat on his back with clenched fists. The colonel felt him all over, swearing violently, and said that his left leg was broken below the knee. They turned the seats over in the ambulance and laid him out on the rubber mattress, with the sutler's wife's shawl for a pillow. When he came to his senses, Miss Corliss was wiping his face with one hand and holding a bottle of smelling salts to his nose with the other. "'You're a good creature,' he said weakly. "'Where are we? Where's Dory?' "'He's on the box with the driver,' Miss Corliss answered. There was a slight quivering in her voice. He said that I would know how best to take care of you. We are about halfway to the post, I should think. There was a look of surprise on the face of the sentry at the guardhouse as the colonel and his party rode into the post in the sutler's buckboard behind a pair of steaming mules. And by the time the post-surgeon had a bed ready at the hospital and the ambulance had arrived, everybody knew the story and accounted Sandham a hero. In the mess room of D Company, he was voted fit for a brevet captaincy and Miss Corliss and her smelling salts were unanimously recommended for the Red Cross. After twenty days, the post-surgeon gave Mix permission to be carried out on the hospital veranda. During the long, balmy June evenings, when the big moon shimmered down across the parade ground, Sandham used to sit beside him in the shadow, and they would listen to the banjo ditties that floated up the hill from the barracks of the ninth. One evening, Mix was dwelling at length on the excellencies of the girl, and wound up so. You know, Dory, he said, I really like that girl. What would you say if, well, if I should take three months' leave and marry her? I shouldn't think much of the girl, Sandham answered. I found out today that she was engaged. Mix eased his leg a little and exclaimed, The devil, you say. Fact, said Sandham. She's engaged to me. End of section five. End of the Black Cat, Volume 1, Number 9, June 1896.